All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you, each week I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin who publishes What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling. With regard to Chen's newsletter, you do need to put your name on a waiting list. You can go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com to do so. Chen will be accepting new subscribers at the beginning of the next calendar quarter over the first couple of weeks then. That would be the first couple of weeks of October. Uh, new subscribers that are on the waiting list will be, uh, will be accepted. Um, you can also subscribe to my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks at miningstocks.com. No waiting list there. You can sign up at any time, or you can call our office in New York at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. Do you want to thank each of you for listening and making this show one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. Also, we uh, want to encourage you to send along your questions and comments to questions for taylor at gmail.com questions the number for taylor at gmail.com also invite you to follow me on twitter at j taylor media also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable our sponsors for today's show are avino silver and gold mines novo resources rn resources Calinex resources and balmoral resources i've titled today's show can the fed keep the stock market up forever David McIlvenny and uh, Quentin Henning are return guests uh, from today's show. You know, it was just uh, last week or so that Louise Yamada was on uh, Bloomberg, so with uh, on Bloomberg Radio with Thomas Keene. She and uh, folks like Dr. Robert McHugh and Michael Oliver, who's frequently on this show, other notable analysts as well, have declared with certainty that the U.S. stock market is headed for a significant bear market. And many economists uh, also and fundamental analysts are predicting that to be the case uh, as well because they're foreseeing a, uh, a recession in the U.S. economy and in the global economy for that matter. We do know that the, the Fed, uh, the BOJ, the EU, and the BOC are directly and indirectly propping up stock prices and attempting to keep economics, uh, the economies of the various countries from contracting. Uh, But will these continuous market manipulations work once again uh, as uh, as this market looks like it's vulnerable? Or will these gods of money now face a major day of reckoning? If central banks are unsuccessful in keeping the equity markets up, what will it mean for the U.S. dollar, for gold, 
for gold mining shares for that matter. Those are questions and more that we will pose to David McIlvenny, who will be joining me uh, pretty much at the half past the hour today. I'm very proud of all the sponsors that I have on this show, but I have to tell you that uh, Dr. Quentin Henning's Novo Gold is at the top of my list, the top of my speculative junior mining pick in my newsletter, and it is the stock with my own uh, personal, largest personal holdings in my retirement account. Not only does uh, Novo Resources have the potential for early production, and I believe highly profitable production, even at these low gold prices, but it appears to have some phenomenal upside exploration potential given the fact that it is the geological lookalike that it has there in Australia, the geological lookalike to the famous Whitwaters Rand deposit of South Africa, from which roughly a third of all the gold that's ever been produced in the face of the earth has come. So uh, you won't want to miss what Quentin Henning has to say. He'll, he'll be coming up uh, in just a minute after we go to break. David McIlvenny will be joining me, as I said, around half past the hour. We, we do have to go to our first commercial break now. Uh, but uh, we'll be right back in a couple of minutes with Dr. Quentin Henning, so don't go away. Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek Project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per ton. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. Avino Silver and Gold Mines is a diversified, low-cost producer with operations in Mexico and Canada. Avino is growth-oriented and recently completed a major expansion at its Mexican operation and is on pace to double output in 2015. Avino recently partnered with Samsung CNT and is now an official metal supplier to one of the world's largest manufacturers of consumer electronics and builder of some of the most prolific engineering projects worldwide. Avino's shares are listed on the NYSE market and the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ASM. If you want a silver lining in your portfolio, think of Eno. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again, Quentin Henning. Dr. Quentin Henning is the President and CEO of Novo Resources Corp., and he has been on this show before, uh, so I won't uh, read over his impressive bio, but it is available uh, at the Voice America Business Channel on uh, my webpage there, at this show's webpage. Of course, he has, uh, Dr. Henning has had extensive experience as, a, as an exploration geologist with major mining companies as well as juniors, uh, and uh, he is a, quite a creative thinker for a geologist, and he's come up with some ideas that I think uh, are really very exciting, which is why Novo Resources uh, is one of my favorite. In fact, it is my largest uh, personal holding in my own uh, retirement account. Uh, so, Novo Resources trades uh, in Toronto under the symbol NVO. You can buy it in the United States, as I have under the symbol NSRPF. There are 76.5 million shares outstanding, and earlier today I was trading at around 55 cents U.S. money, giving it a market cap of around U.S. $42 million. Well, this is a, a most unusual gold exploration story that I think uh, you will soon you're going to hear a lot more. I think the investment community is going to hear a lot more about this story, and it's really uh, it's 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 very unusual for a couple of reasons. First of all, exploration geologist uh, Quentin Henning, who we're going to be speaking to now, has envisioned a new explanation for how the Great Witwatersrand deposit of South Africa was laid down, and that has led him really to where he's working now in uh, northwestern Australia uh, on the Beaton's Creek project. And and that Witwatersrand uh, deposit, actually the proof of concept has already, I think, uh, been revealed that uh, the concept of how that Witwatersrand deposit was laid down, um, and Dr. Henning has uh, that now gone out to uh, northwestern Australia and has established uh, potentially another, well, at least a Witwatersrand look-alike, geologically speaking. So that's one of the reasons it's a very special story. But secondly, uh, and probably of more immediate importance for both near- and long-term success for the company, uh, is the potential for Beaton's Creek project to uh, generate positive cash flows uh, fairly early on, potentially as early as uh, the first quarter of 2016. So I, I want to thank you, Dr. Henning, for joining me again today. Thanks so much for taking your valuable time. We're speaking to you, as I understand, from down under. You're in Perth today. Is that right? That's correct, Jay. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to talk. Uh, I was just mentioning the Witwatersrand concept and, and how it was formed and that we've talked to you about before on this show. Uh, it is an exciting story, a very interesting story. If you're in the least bit interested in geology, uh, you know, the eons of time that it took for this, uh, for this deposit to be laid down, uh, and you come up with a new concept. So I would, I would uh, really encourage first-time listeners to this story to go to the website at Novo uh, Resources red website and uh, and learn more about the concept of uh, of how the Witwaters Rand was laid down because Dr. Henning has found a similar geological environment and all uh, indications so far is that he is on to something that is very similar uh, and and potentially uh, only time will tell whether it can be compared economically to the Wits. Dr. Henning, as you explained to me early on, you were always quite interested in getting some early cash flow. And, and this particular project seems to hold some great potential for that. I mean, unlike most projects that you and I are familiar with, it takes years and years before you can start to generate cash flow 
But but what is it that makes this uh, unique in terms of its ability to provide some early on uh, cash flow? Yeah, sure, Jay. There's a few few uh, components to the answer to that question. Um, you know, the target size is quite large. We're looking at a system that that could have uh, you know large scale potential, like you've alluded to with your your introduction. But like you said, I'm focused on on moving the company towards cash flow. The the thesis behind that is, uh, if we have cash flow, we then can can explore the larger project without incurring a huge amount of dilution. Uh, you know, expiration dollars are hard to come by these days. Uh, Financings, you know, tend to incur a lot of dilution. A lot of companies have gone down that path, and it's not ended well. So the way I see this is, if we can get to early cash flow, we can uh, you know, sustain the company while we go through the, the exploration process. And the, the thing that makes this thing special is that these conglomerate beds, these beds that host the gold, are actually nearly flat lying. And they outcrop uh, over a fairly broad area where down to about 20 meters they've been thoroughly oxidized. And this oxidized material, this, this oxidized conglomerate material, contains coarse gold. So we've got a couple of advantages. One is it's shallow. It's, uh, it's easily mined. You know, we're, we're looking at basically ripping and, and excavating uh, with n- no drilling and blasting. Uh, but the other component is cheap recovery. We're looking at coarse gold that can be recovered in a gravity-type scenario. Uh, so the processing costs would be quite low. Uh, the mine that we're looking at pushing forward with uh, will be modest scale. We're not talking about a huge operation, but it's it's one that we think will generate uh, pretty robust margins, pretty robust cash flow, and allow us to, to uh, pursue the bigger goal. Okay, so I know that you came up with a maiden resource uh, maybe two years ago, um, close to that. Uh, there was over 420,000 ounces or thereabouts and uh, 1.47 grams per ton. Uh, but you're, you've really come up with some much higher grade assays recently uh, from bulk tonnage samples, very extensive uh, samples that you've taken. I know you're coming out with a resource pretty soon, but it looks to me as if we could be looking at something that could be uh, perhaps double that 1.47 grams per ton. I mean, just, just eyeballing and doing some back-of-the-envelope calculations of, of the extensive assays that you've made public. I know you can't comment exactly because you don't have the numbers yet, but what kind of numbers might we expect, um, if you could comment sure. on that? Yeah, Jay, I can a- answer that with a, a few things. First of all, yeah, we're, we're expecting a resource uh, back from engineers in, say, a week or so. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of comparing apples to oranges a bit. Mm-hmm. If you look back at our initial resource, it was drilled in a, a restricted area of a little over half a square kilometer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the drilling was predominantly where the reefs dipped down into the, the fresh material. So this okay. resource is down into the, the material that's not oxidized yet. Okay. It, it's a, and it was also modeled in a much different way than we're going to be doing in this next round. So the, oh. the resource that we announced in 2013 modeled, for example, on three-meter um, minimum widths, which effectively diluted the grades of these, these reefs, which are often, you know, say a meter or two thick. Uh, and as a result, you know, we, we saw a grade of 1.47 gram. Now, initially, you know, you, you wind back the clock gold, I think was... Uh, 
maybe sixteen or seventeen hundred dollars around that time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and you wind back the clock, and it, you know, economically, it, it looked like that would be uh, potentially suitable for an open pit mine. But you know, gold's fallen quite a bit. You know, Australian dollars, it's not quite as bad. It, you know, Australian dollars have dropped, so gold has mm-hmm. come up as well. But uh, so there's a bit of a trade-off. But what we are looking at is kind of a, a completely rejigged resource. So, yes, there will be data out of that initial resource that's that's used, but what we will end up doing is capturing a subset of that initial resource, and then we'll be adding to it the the area that we've, you know, more recently drilled, this oxide target area. So, you know, we'll be losing some tons and some probably some ounces on the out of that initial area, but we'll be adding to it uh, some oxide ounces, which is the the focus for this, uh, you know, conceptual uh, first stage mine. Now, as far as grade goes, uh, yes, you'll see an improvement in grade. We uh, we recognize the coarse gold effect, uh, you know, a while back, and we've tried to address that in both drilling and the surface trench work that we've done. The uh, the caveat I'll put there is that if you can imagine drilling a you know a flat one meter thick reef with an RC drill as the drill goes down we sample at one meter intervals so more often than not you're going to arbitrarily split the reef into two the the conglomerate horizon into two sample intervals so we have a bit of a you know a conundrum there we get uh, these rc results which if you put them all in the bag and average them out come out one number but then we have these highly select they're not select but targeted Costine mm-hmm. uh, samples, where we're able to sample from the top to the bottom of the reef very precisely, and and they're coming out a different set of numbers. Now, it's it really all boils down to how the resource estimators treat that that data set. Mm-hmm. You know, they're relying on both sets, both the RC and the Costine uh, samples. Uh, but if you look back at the last news re- release I had about results, which I think was uh, August twentieth, uh, you'll see that. An average grade for the uh, 470 some odd costines we have right now is about 3.3 grams. Mm-hmm. Our resource probably will not reflect that because the RC samples are also taken into account. But we will definitely see an improve an improvement in grade over that initial one. Okay, so it's really your costine samples were were larger samples, were they not? More probably more representative of uh, of the grades potentially. Correct. Yes, we took uh, you know something on the order of forty to sixty kilograms uh, off of each costine. Yeah, so they're larger samples. They were processed in in a larger way. You know, we took a larger split to analyze. So we feel those numbers are are fairly reflective of uh, you know representation in the grade of the the reefs. Now, Dr. Henning, you recently announced a couple of other properties that uh, that you've acquired that also have high-grade uh, free-milling gold occurrences, and, and uh, are, are you looking possibly to have those as uh, contributing to production in the near term? Well, correct, yes. We, we looked around, you know, gold, uh, because it's come off, the, the availability of properties is, mm-hmm. is quite high right now, and mm-hmm. the price is reasonably cheap. It's basically... A buyer's market, mm-hmm. uh, and we looked around at what might complement what we're doing at Beaton's Creek. Uh, the the projects that we picked up, both from Talga Resources and Northwest Resources, 
are different style of gold mineralization. They're, they're what are called orogenic load deposits. They're hosted by by or around quartz veins, mm-hmm. things like this. But these projects contain coarse gold, uh, and they could potentially complement what we're doing at Beaton's Creek. Yes, uh, they're proximal to the project area. You know, they're all within uh, a few tens of kilometers radius of, of our Beaton's Creek project. So looking down the road, we see... You know, advantages in bringing, say, some potentially high-grade uh, coarse gold mineralization into the the picture of production. Mm-hmm. Well, you're uh, of course the cor- the coarse gold is important because of the simplicity of of uh, winning it from the ore, right? That's correct. Yes, the coarse gold makes for easier gravity recovery and uh, easy gravity recovery and simplicity of, of a milling process reduces capital costs over what might be uh, required if you have to have more complicated uh, metallurgical processes. Yes, capital and operating costs, correct. Right, right. And these are a couple of reasons why uh, you're expecting, uh, potentially at least, to have very robust and good good margins, as you uh, noted earlier. Well, you know, just this, this past week, you come up with, uh, I think, what what is a very interesting and important announcement. You announced that the company has, has purchased something called an IGR 3000 gold plant. Talk to us a little bit about that and how you plan to use that or how that fits into your plans uh, to uh, head towards production, hopefully. Sure. So this plant was uh, is, is nearly new. It was available. Uh, it was reasonably cheap compared to its you know initial price. I think it was probably a third or a quarter of what uh, the initial price would have been. So... We got a very good deal on it. it uh, it's not a, a huge scale plant, but the most important part of the plant is that it has two falcons, which are centrifugal concentrators mm-hmm. on it. And it's got a design that we could modify to handle what we, we're, we're going to call trial mining tests at Beaton's Creek. So the concept is to, to move the plant over to Beaton's Creek. It's in North America right now. We'll move it over shortly. And then we're going to file permits to um, potentially mine you know, some, some, we'll call them bulk samples, but they're really large tonnies, like a few tens of thousands of tons mm-hmm. of material. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that have to, to come together in the interim, but we, we project being able to do this trial mining, say, by early January of 2016. Mm-hmm. The, the trial mining, we feel, is important because it will give us a, a better sense of grade and you know potential recoveries of uh, of gold out of these types of ore. We have a lot of metallurgical work at this point that tells us uh, they, it should be quite favorable. But we we need to prove that you know proof is in the pudding. So sure, uh, this this plant is uh, capable of processing around thirty to fifty tons per hour. Uh, we do need to to have a, what's called a comminution portion to this. Is basically the the crushing and grinding of the material beforehand but we're we're sorting that out right now uh mm-hmm. so we think we can feed this plant you know like i said 30 to 50 tons per hour of uh crushed and grind ground material that can be processed and, and hopefully re- recover uh appreciable gold whether you know we can't 
prognosticate about uh, cash flows and stuff out of it, but we sure. we hopeful that it will be uh, productive. Well, I just I know that uh, I think you indicated before that uh, some of the early metallurgical tests were suggesting that gravity could uh, recover something on the order of eighty uh, yeah. percent, if if I'm and, right. And so if this plant could do that, if it as you say the proof is in the pudding, if it could do that. 30 to 50 tons and 3 grams per ton or so uh, works out to some pretty attractive numbers on a very small scale, but nonetheless uh, could be could be attractive, it, it I should think. It does, and it, it'll be a leapfrog to, to the bigger operation that we have in mind. We, we are, you know, we're, once we get a resource out, we're going to start putting together a, a mine scenario for an economic study uh, that would be out later this year uh, that would encompass something on the order of 1,500, say, say a half million tons per year, so 1,500 tons per day. So this trial mine is definitely a step in that direction. So that would be a goal potentially for next year to, to achieve that level? That's right, yeah. 15, we, we, 1,500 tons per day sometime in 2016? Correct. We think we can move that project forward very quickly on the back of, of all of the other work we're doing. So we're shooting for, say, mid mid to third quarter 2015, or 2016, sorry, for, sure. uh, for that scenario. Right, exactly. Well, you know, I think it's very important for listeners to who are focused on this industry to realize that, you know, you're an exploration geologist, that's your forte, but you have also brought on uh, an engineer who has some, some good experience producing gold and designing plants, as I understand it. Could you just talk a little bit about your the engineer yeah. that you brought on and, and let our listeners know about his skill sets? Sure. He, he joined us. Uh, his name is Simon Foley. Uh, he joined us about three months ago. Uh, Simon and I have been working quite closely on advancing the, the production side of this project. Uh, so in, in a very short time here, he's helped us, uh, you know, steer things towards, you know, we'll call it aggressive uh, permitting as well as economics studies that we're going to need to complete all this work. I think over the next three or four months, you'll see a lot of news come out that clearly shows the company is heading in that direction. It's it's difficult to talk about those things until we have the resource out. So we got to take this in stepwise fashion, but we'll get the resource out, and then I'll be able to talk more and more about all the things that, that Simon has been doing for us mm-hmm. uh, uh, since. But as, as some people know, Simon uh, helped build the mine near nearby, which is belongs to Millennium Minerals, uh, it's, a, it's an operation that's based on a whole different ore deposit. But um, it's been a, a reasonably successful mine, and in this gold environment, that's uh, that's important. So um, he's recognized the potential of our property and uh, decided to join us, and we're very grateful. Will you be doing a feasibility study before you before you produce? Look, uh, in the real world. Yeah, most projects would go towards feasibility level study, uh, but we have a project here that we see as being a reasonably low capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you you know follow the eighty twenty rule, um, you can get eighty percent of your answer for about twenty percent of the cost. Uh-huh. You can yeah, you can get a hundred percent of the answer, but you're going to pay a lot more for it. Right? Sure. So we uh, we think that we can get economics put together. Yes, there'll be you know plus or minus you know twenty five or thirty percent. But we we think we can get economics put together to a satisfactory level to, to you know to look go out and source capital for this project. A lot of people are aware of what we're doing; they know that this is a good project. You know, I, I get requests all the time uh, from people who are interested in helping us build this this project. You know, I, I can't throw numbers around, Jay, I mm-hmm. wish I could, but um, you know, it's not going to be a, a huge 
dollar exercise. We're talking about a very, very modest uh, amount of capital. So you're not seeing any, you're not at all worried too much then, I guess, about uh, finding the capital you need to get into production, at least in these early lower level stages. Uh, I'm not. We actually have some uh, some pretty good friends that are close to the company who I think will be able to help us move in that direction. I know that it's the Beaton's Creek project that you're working on, and that's what you're focused on right now, but you have a considerable amount of, uh, of potential exploration territory around there, do you not? Could you just comment briefly on the extent of, of potential, um, say lateral potential? Sure. You know, that, that goes right back to what I said at the beginning. We're looking at taking this in a stepwise fashion, so developing this, getting cash flow, and then looking at the bigger picture using uh, the dollars for, for exploration. So at Beaton's Creek, you know, we, we, we've kind of left the sulfide be for now. We haven't drilled uh, holes out into that country for over a year now, or we haven't done really much work at all, uh, save, save a deep hole we drilled in November last year. But we do think that the, these reefs will continue down into the basin for some distance. And, you know, once again, the size of that could be substantial. We, we mm-hmm. think there's potential for extending these reefs in you know, on the order of uh, a few square kilometers, we'll mm-hmm. call it, out into the basin. That's one area. Uh, but up at Marble Bar, for example, we haven't haven't you know really focused here recently on chasing up the North Contact Creek area. And people can review these the, some of the data in our news releases as well as our presentation. Mm-hmm. But we found a, a reef up there where we're getting samples, uh, you know, up to half an ounce per ton. Mm-hmm. Very similar reef to that at Beaton's Creek. It really hasn't even been explored. The thing has, doesn't even have a hammer mark or didn't have a hammer mark on it until we, we found it and beat the living snot out of it. Uh, you know, that's one target. There's the West Virgin Creek area, which is another target. Uh, but we, you know, we have several things we would like to tackle once we get to cash flow. Well, then cash flow is uh, hopefully going to be coming fairly soon. How is the cash position now? Uh, we have about uh, about a little over four million at this mm-hmm. point. You know, I speak in Canadian dollars. Sure. Uh, we we do have some payments we have to make associated with the acquisitions that we we you can read back through news releases. It's mm-hmm. on the order of uh, I think a few hundred thousand dollars, five or six hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. But we have sufficient money to get oriented towards this trial mining scenario, and we are looking though at capital, you know, potentially capitalizing that bigger project down the road. So I'm looking at various options right now, but I'm actually quite comfortable where we're at. So your focus this year and going into 2016 will be primarily on production, I guess, and then will you be doing any exploration? I suppose you, you will be, right? But but primarily well, interested first in getting cash flow. Yes, we'll, we'll be doing some exploration. We've we've got to meet work commitments or, you know, the what are called the minimum work commitments mm-hmm. or expenditures for the uh, government on various tenements. So we'll uh-huh. be doing work on those, but... Uh, it's not going to be what I call our main focus, but I would say you know some of the news you see over the next few months will focus on that exploration. All right. So aside from the new forty three one hundred one resource numbers, which are coming out shortly, what I think by the twentieth or sometime like that of this month. Uh, yeah, that's the target date given to us by the engineer. Aside from that, then the drivers that the investors should be looking at. Uh, beyond that, it's going to be all like I said. As soon as that comes out, we can move towards the economic study, and uh, it's all about uh, how we're going to progress the project, you know, towards the development. Oh scenario. boy! Yeah, oh, I, I look forward to exactly. that. 
I'm looking forward to that, Quentin. You don't know uh, how much. Well, you probably do. You know that I've, I've been a big supporter. I really love this story, and um, we'll, time will tell. But it's, it seems to have all the potential for success that I can see. I, you know, I've tried to find out where the fatal flaws are. And if anybody out there uh, has some ideas about where the f- fatal flaws are, nobody would like to know more than Quentin Henning, I suppose, about that. But uh, I'm sure that you've racked your brain, uh, your brains day and night over this uh, for many, for several years now, Quentin. I, I've looked at this project and, and, you know, all aspects, you know, everything from the geological side to the technical side to the permitting side. And this is one, you know, we're in a great jurisdiction. Australia dollar has fallen, so gold's high here. The margins mm-hmm. are potentially high. You know, we have got so many things working for us. I'm just extremely encouraged, I'm, you know, Basically, this is one I can see going for the jugular on here. Anything else you'd like to add today, Quentin, before we say goodbye? You, you know, Jay, I, I, I think we've covered most things. It's been actually a very productive discussion. I appreciate it and uh, you know, look forward to talking more in the future. Oh, I sure do. Thank you very much, Quentin, and uh, we will look forward to keeping in touch. And, and even when you're not on the show, uh, I will let my listeners know what's going on uh, when there's some important news releases. So thank you very much. Thank you. Some things never go out of style. In the gold business, for over 100 years, high-grade Canadian gold discoveries have been in vogue amongst investors. Balmoral Resources has continued to deliver high-grade results from a series of new discoveries in Quebec. If you're looking to upgrade your portfolio in the fall with some golden highlights, learn more about Balmoral at balmoralresources.com. Balmoral trades on the OTCQX under the symbol BALMF and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol BAR. Kalinex is a junior with major near-term catalysts. This tightly held company is advancing its projects containing copper, zinc, gold, and silver in Manitoba, Canada. Kalinex's projects are within 10 miles to Hud Bay's mine that has less than five years of ore. Kalinex has high-grade deposits and new targets with exciting discovery potential, with drill results anticipated shortly. Now is the time to learn more about Kalinex by visiting kalinex.ca. That's C-A-L-L-I-N-E-X dot C-A. Kalinex is publicly traded under the symbol CNX in Canada and CLLXF in the U.S. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me uh, for a second time David McElvaney. He's the president 
uh, of the McIlvany Financial Companies, um, McIlvany Wealth Management and ICA. It's a 36-year-old precious metals brokerage firm, and uh, David, uh, his full bio can be read at our uh, at our page at the Voice America Business Channel. So go there if you'd like to learn more about David, or go to uh, McIlvany. Dot com. Better yet, the place to go to in any event uh, to learn not only more about David, but more about what his firm does and also to pick up on some excellent commentary that he provides on a weekly basis. And I understand probably another one will be coming out this evening. So thanks for joining me again, David. It's really good to talk to you. Jay, it's great to be with you again. Uh, time flies when you're having fun. I think we need to update our, our, our bio with you. We're 43 years in the business and, and still enjoying it. Oh, okay. Well, I, it hasn't been. All right. Well, my apologies. Well, thanks for pointing that out. 43 years now. Uh, more credibility under your belt, no doubt, uh, because I know the business was started by your father many years ago. I'm more your father's age, so I'm, I'm, I've been around probably uh, longer than you have in a way. So, but in any event, thank you for, for being with us. And, uh, you know, before we get started, I just, just real quickly, if you could just tell our listeners uh, what you do provide. You do provide wealth management services, I guess, and, and you sell, hard, you sell uh, precious metals. Uh, anything else? Yeah, the combination is, is kind of a nice hand-in-glove fit. We are, on the one hand, your, your defensive coordinator from a financial standpoint. We look at precious metals as a form of insurance for your financial resources and so, from a defensive posture, that's that's always you know we go back to 1972 when we we opened our doors. Uh, one of the first to be in the, the gold bullion business, uh, actually a couple of years before it was legal, finding a a, a, qu- a cute little loophole. Uh, I'd be happy to tell you about sometime. The um, money management business is more of the offensive coordinator for our clients, if you will, looking at stocks, bonds, foreign currencies commodities, et cetera. We manage all of that on a discretionary basis in separately managed accounts. And, you know, the other thing that we spend a lot of time doing, as you mentioned, the commentary is a way for us to keep in touch with folks and have them know our thoughts on a weekly mm-hmm. basis, what's happening in the markets. Um, mm-hmm. Education is a big piece for us. So just finished a book um, and, and are working on a homeschool curriculum on economics, investment, and finance. So education is, is certainly front and center in everything that we do. Wow, is that new book uh, have to do with the homeschooling uh, economic curriculum? No, it's different. Um, oh. It's called Intentional Families, uh, Reverse Engineering a Legacy from End to Beginning. And it looks at all the aspects of the legacy that we desire to leave for uh, future generations. Clearly, at a, at a high-level view, we can say that the legacy we're leaving, whether it's the $18.4 trillion in real-time debt or the long-term unfunded liabilities of $210 trillion. It's not the kind of legacy that we would on the surface choose, but that is nevertheless what we're leaving. This is more of a personal look at what we as individuals choose, the way we organize our home life, and the resources that we manage, whether it's the intellectual capital, uh, the emotional capital, the spiritual capital, all of the other elements that go into the legacy that we leave. Um, and I make the case that legacy is not something that you actually do leave. It's something that you're creating right here, right now, uh, daily basis. Absolutely. Well, I really look forward to that book, and I hope you can come on and tell us more about it once it's out. How soon will it be out? Um, hardback will be out in six weeks. Oh, it, it sounds like something that would fit very, very well for this show. So I hope you can, uh, when you're ready to sell that book, you'll come on and, and, and talk more in depth about it. Well, uh, speaking of wealth management, uh, can you tell our listeners what you are doing right now for your clients? I mean, I heard your 
I heard your podcast, your weekly commentary, and I would just strongly suggest to my listeners that they go to McIlvaney.com and listen to that weekly podcast that's put out there. It's about an hour long, isn't it, David? Yeah, sometimes it's uh, 30, 40 minutes if we get yeah. long, and there's a lot to talk about, as there is in the markets today. It'll stretch oh. to an hour. Um, what are we doing? We're yes. focusing on liquidity. We're focusing on moving towards market and market neutral position. And, you know, there's a lot of ways to lose money today, not very many to make it where risk and reward are in balance. So we do think that the opportunities are on the horizon and liquidity is, uh, in terms of its optionality, uh, is to be valued. Um, market neutral positions, that is to say, if you have an equity position, um, being hedged, we have been uh, for several months, and uh, even even a, even a net short position would, would be appropriate at this juncture. Well, I did hear your comments uh, about Louise Yamada. She's someone that I have a very, very high regard for, have met her personally on a number of occasions and find her to be a very genuine, uh, honest person, uh, as honest as anybody I've seen in this business, I would dare say. At least that's my judgment. You uh, you noted that she's she's turned bearish, and she talked about it on Tom Keen and on Bloomberg one morning. Teresa and I were having breakfast. We uh, we almost fell off our chairs. Uh, but no, not really, because we've known Louise but what are your thoughts? And also, I'd like to ask you about something. another comment that you made on your show uh, having to do with how the market sentiment is changing, whereas at one time, good news was good news and bad news was good news. Now, almost no news seems to be good news, although I would uh, mention that today the equity market is up uh, big time. It's up about 250 points on the Dow. But, uh, but so what are your thoughts about Louise Yamada and her, her, her uh, forecast as well as uh, – uh, the equity markets in general. Why do you think this sentiment has changed? Yeah, you know, 15, 20 years ago, that's when I first ran into Louise Yamada and Alan Shaw um, at Smith Barney. And um, what I at first thought was sort of voodoo, which is, you know, the, the art and craft of chart uh, watching and understanding, mm-hmm. um, became something that I, I, I understood later as is very prescient and very helpful uh, for mm-hmm. acknowledging and, and, and marking market trend changes. So um, Alan, Sean, Louise Yamana, I, I consider to be then and now two of the best in the business. And um, her call for on a monthly basis, looking at monthly indicators, uh, us heading into a bear market, I think is significant. It's considerable. It's not so much the issue of a cyclical trend as, as a long-term secular trend. Is that a six-month downturn? Well, it could be at least that. Um, but a long-term secular trend can last many years as well. Um, I, I guess the issue in play is central bank resolve because we've had the opportunity going back to 2011, 12, and 13 to trip over into a formal recession and central bank intervention pulled us right out and the indication, indications that we had, certainly the Economic Cycles Research Institute had suggested all of those years we were heading into recession and lo and behold, those were neutralized by massive, massive central bank mm. intervention. So do we see that again? Uh, perhaps. But something that has changed, which you suggested, and, and, and what I, which I did in the weekly commentary last week, market sentiment has changed. Market mm-hmm. sentiment has changed. The average investor feels differently. He's, he certainly does feel differently, uh, but why should he? I mean, it, it seems to me that we, you know, we've had this uh, lots and lots of money. I mean, there's, there's been a, a put uh, given in the market, you know, so as long as, as soon as things start to fall, 
the equity market starts to spin out of control. In comes a huge amount of new buying, a new amount of money into the system, probably some plunge protection team action at the right times to keep things from getting out of hand too far on the downside. So why wouldn't you just sort of assume, I mean, I honestly, I've been on the short side of this market long to, far too long. I've been hurt very badly by not playing the game along with, uh, with the bulls. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking now, well, you know, what a fool I've been. I, perhaps I should just, just sign up for, uh, for Mr. Krugman and the rest of these Keynesians. Well, what we find in talking with people directly is that they're looking back at 2000 and 2008 and saying, twice this has happened to me. I've lost tremendous value being long equities, and I may be above my original starting point from 15 years ago, but only marginally, and I don't want it to happen a third time. The sense is that something's not right. Um, As we talk to folks across the country and around the world, uh, number one, they don't trust the data. The information that's being provided from, from your major wirehouse firms, they look as very one-sided and, and skewed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so their sense is that they're being misinformed on the one hand, something's not right on the other. And with that in mind, sort of anticipating the next shoe dropping, they don't want to be the third time the fool um, having ignored the signs and signals. Mm-hmm. You know, David, the way I look at this, we and, and you alluded to it or talked about it directly, actually, on your last commentary, about how central banks uh, have just, you know, completely not allowed the markets to work, not allowed uh, the excesses to be wrung out of the system by the market action. It, to me, it's a little bit like, you know, if you take a beach ball and push it under the water, uh, you know, it wants to come back up to the surface, right? But and and if you think you can let it up slowly, it's kind of tricky, isn't it? It's a little bit tricky. You you let it up a little bit, and then it gets out of your hands and just explodes right out of the air. Uh, the yeah, Fed is contemplating a, a a quarter point interest rate rise, and as you and I have talked about before we went on on the air, that's just a little bit. That's not much of. It. I mean, it's just the rates are so minusculely. They're so minuscule. The, the rate levels are so ridiculously low right now, so far out of touch with free, free markets, I'm quite convinced. So can they do it easily, though? Can they let the gas out? Can they let the ball, the beach ball, come out easily, David? Or, or something might get out of hand? Well, it's, it's going back to the ideas originally written up by a famous economist from Sweden, Knut Wicksell. He, in the 1860s and 70s, um, made the case that if you keep interest rates too low for too long, ultimately they go much higher than you would want them to. And mm-hmm. it's, it is like that beach ball that you mentioned. It tends to breach the surface of the water, and it finds equilibrium ultimately, but only after blowing past it initially. So mm-hmm. um, I think the reality is they'll do everything that they can to sit on interest rates, um, you know, and, and they're kind of stuck. Um, they've created a massive amount of liquidity on the one hand, which they've given to banks to lend out, now they realize that there's too much liquidity in the system and they need to take it out of the system gingerly. Uh, New York Times article from the 13th would, would indicate that they're going to be paid tens of billions of dollars not to lend. The Fed mm-hmm. will pay tens of billions of dollars for banks not to lend to the general public and to keep those excess reserves still deposited with the Fed. Does that mean that they're going to increase interest rates there as well, increase the interest component to those excess reserves of depository institutions? Perhaps. But the other issue is where will they take interest rates? 25 basis point interest rate increase um, means that we're still, in real terms, factoring in the CPI, uh, standard measure of inflation, 
still negative in real terms by 125 basis points. Yeah. So we remain incredibly accommodative. And, 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 and an accommodative level we haven't seen, um, you know, really, frankly, in, in, in the history of the world. Seven years at zero rates, um, and, and in this case, factoring in inflation negative rates, that's extraordinary. That's extraordinary. And at the same time, of course, they want to keep the equity markets up. Um, and you did re- refer to the plunge protection team on your last con- your last uh, podcast. Um, you know, Wall Street is quick to denounce China for manipulating its stock market, and yet, uh, as you pointed out, uh, we're doing much the same thing uh, through the Fed, but not directly through the Fed. Could you talk about that a little bit, David? Well, sure. I mean, you know, the president's working group on financial markets is is you know sort of the best and the brightest from the CFTC, the SEC, your major regulators and your major Wall Street firms. And when the markets get dicey, um, you know, smoothing that volatility is is very critical to making sure that mom and pop with a stock portfolio don't jump ship and take their marbles and go home. Mm-hmm. So the President's Working Group on Financial Markets has for decades been that smoothing operator. Uh, we've done similar things to the Chinese, so the, we might be critical of their high levels of intervention. Going back to 2008, uh, we banned short selling. We didn't put anybody yeah. in jail, but we banned short selling on General Electric, a number of the financials, the same kinds of shenanigans that they've employed to bring about quote-unquote market stability. I think what most people don't understand is that if you can't short a stock and move to a neutral position, then you have to be willing to ride out long stretches of volatility and it really leaves you with one choice, sell. So, yeah. so instead of you know, shorting, shorting a stock, if you own the stock, just gets you to neutral. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, th- I think shorting in some respects has a bad rap in that regard. Um, and by, uh, by prohibiting short selling, you end up exacerbating a downtrend by forcing the decision of people to leave that stock altogether. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Backfires then essentially. Uh, okay, so you know you you mentioned the uh, uh, taking your marbles home is an expression you also used in your last podcast, and it seems as though that to a certain extent may have started to happen, uh, notwithstanding today's uh, strong market performance. But uh, you mentioned that it seems as though money is coming out of both the treasuries and the equity markets at the same time, and certainly, you know, we've seen during this bull run in stocks the the exact opposite correlation, money in the equity market out of bonds and, and the other way around. When equity markets go down, bond market uh, goes up, stock market, the um, uh, treasury market goes up. But are you you're see, saying that that, isn't, that that seems to be breaking down a bit now, David? Yeah, I, I would suggest that this is one of the indications that there is a greater level of concern. And again, going back to market sentiment having shifted, there's enough investors out there who say something just looks and feels different this time. And what is different this time in terms of the allocation shift is your normal allocation shift, if you're coming out of stocks, is to lower your risk and move to bonds. In this case, we have large amounts of money coming out of both stocks and bonds simultaneously, suggesting that people are more concerned with the system as a whole and that old, old phrase will I get my money back versus what will I get on my money? Return of capital versus return on capital. I think people are much more concerned about the return of capital at all. Mm-hmm. Why is that? I mean, I don't know that we have anything on the immediate horizon that smacks of, you know, a Cyprus-style or Greek-style bail-in. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but there is growing concern that something's not quite right. Well, there certainly is a growing concern, and I, I believe uh, it was Carl Rogoff in the Financial Times recently uh, in which he suggested as, as much the same, essentially, that, uh, that the banks were not as good off as they would appear to be, and he sort of worries about people wanting to take their money out of the banks when things aren't going well worried about people wanting to pull their money out, and so he's suggesting that we get rid of that second barbaric relic, and this was printed up in the Financial Times a, a week or so ago, that being cash. You know, we got rid of the first one, gold, uh, get it out of the system, and now, God forbid that people should have the right to take their own money and use it and spend it and, and live freely. They're suggesting that we can't have a run on the banks. We cannot afford to do it, and so one of the excuses then for making only digital money, getting rid of cash... Uh, and this is, you know, a pretty serious guy, uh, Professor Rogoff in the Financial Times. This is an establishment talking about the theoretical, at least theoretical possibilities of getting rid of cash. Yeah, well, and this is, I think, uh, an extension of what Michael Woodford wrote about in his Interest in Prices, Foundations mm-hmm. of the Theory of Monetary Policy. He wrote this a couple of years ago, and it served as the justification for what, what, what Mr. Rogoff is arguing which is basically moving us towards a cashless society. The, the, the reality is the guys who have PhDs, who are sort of running the monetary world, they're not willing to acknowledge that they've made any mistakes along the way. They kind of view yeah. themselves as, as wunderkinds. And, and so as boy wonders, as geniuses, the policies that they put in place are clearly bright and they're the best and they're, 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 they're perfect. Yeah. Uh, with that, with that in mind, um, what we see happening is an anomaly. Why is velocity falling off the edge of a cliff? Why is the money and the liquidity that's been put into the system not churning through the system and creating economic activity? Rather than reappraise their ideas and and their basic philosophy of of, of monetary theory, monetary policy, they would write. They would like to say, you know what? We need to force the money out of the system, and we're going to force the money out of the system by putting a sell-by date on it. So that's what mm-hmm. you're describing. Put a sell-by date on, on cash deposits in the bank, and it forces you uh, to, to spend money. And, yeah. and, and, and you, can't, you can't do that. You can't force money into the system and out of bank deposits if people have the option of putting money in the mattress, literal physical cash. So they would like to go to a cashless society rather than acknowledge that there might be some frailties in their theories of monetary policy. So what, what is that going to mean? And suppose that goes through. What's it going to do to us uh, and our freedom and our liberties? These are very good questions. Freedoms, liberties. I mean, think about it. We, we have operated for hundreds of years, thousands of years, with the idea that we can transact business, and it's our business. It's nobody right. else's business. And so we've already given up by transacting the amount of business that we do on the Internet. We've already given up the notion that somehow privacy is in any way relevant or important to us. So I think culturally we are ripe for the idea that we just move to something that's more convenient. And all you need is, is a trumped-up case of money laundering or what have you where, you know, again, a Rogoff or a Woodford or somebody else comes out and says, we wouldn't have this problem. And we wouldn't, you know, maybe it's the Chinese, maybe the Chinese, there's a vast Chinese conspiracy to destroy the U.S. dollar through money printing or something. And the only way to solve it is to move towards this safer system. I, I think the people would, would, would stop it up. They'd love it. 
They'd love it. They'd feel, oh, that's going to make it all safe. It's going to make it all better. And after all, we knew it was the Chinese anyways. So they get, right. they get a two-for-one system where they move to a towards a cashless society on the one hand, benefit number one. Benefit number two, um, they, have, they have someone else to blame. Well, <laughs> and I think that's you where ju- we're at. You just used the word trumped up. Uh, and I just couldn't help but think about oh. Donald Trump, and I think one of the uh, one of the villains, uh, along with the uh, the Mexicans and people coming in from our southern border, uh, are the Chinese, just exactly as you said. And I honestly, uh, David, I've recently read the biography of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You probably know the name, uh, the great theologian that opposed Hitler and uh, and paid for it with his life. Uh, it was but quite reading in our office last year. It, it, it was required. Okay, so you know it very well. But getting the flavor for what life was like in Germany then and how quick the people were uh, to, um, uh, to vent their anger or to accept Hitler because of their anger. And when I see Donald Trump, I don't, I don't mean to rain on anybody's parade that's listening to this that might like Donald Trump, but he, he concerns me a bit. We've got just a minute or so left. Could you comment? Because you did make some comments about the political atmosphere that is brewing right now, both uh, visibly, both in the Democratic and the Republican parties. Would you care to just comment on that quickly? Well, sure. When you look at Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, you have two people who are outside of the mainstream and certainly not within the establishment, quote unquote, of either the Republican National Committee or the DNC. And, you know, I, I, th- I think what it's suggesting is that the rank and file member, Democrat or Republican, is just simply sick of it. You know, yeah. they, they can do the math. They can say, OK, so how does Hillary Clinton go from a zero net worth to well over one hundred and twenty million dollars? Last time I checked with my stockbroker, he can't do that for me. And it's not really even humanly possible yeah. in the time frames involved. If you're talking about a multi-generational process, maybe. So you've you've got Democrats who are saying, wait a minute, something's not quite right. Republicans who are saying, wait a minute, fiscally, Republicans don't do anything different than Democrats. They just spend money in large scales on other things. But it's really no different. Nobody's responsible. And so I think there is disaffection amongst the party, uh, both parties. And so you have these two outliers. All right, David, we're out of time, unfortunately. But I just tell people, go to McIlvaney.com. You can hear David's comments on this and many, many more things, practically things also on investing and, and gold and the economy. So please go to McIlvaney.com. Thank you, David. I'm sorry we don't have more time. We'll look to do it again sometime when, you have, when, you're, av- when you're available. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, folks, that is all the time we have. Next week, Richard Mayberry will be with me. Uh, also, I'll be talking to uh, the CEO, Max Porterfield of uh, – the CEO of Kalanex Mines. So until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek Project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per ton. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. 
Trevino Silver and Gold Mines is a diversified, low-cost producer with operations in Mexico and Canada. Avino is growth-oriented and recently completed a major expansion at its Mexican operation and is on pace to double output in 2015. Avino recently partnered with Samsung CNT and is now an official metal supplier to one of the world's largest manufacturers of consumer electronics and builder of some of the most prolific engineering projects worldwide. Avino's shares are listed on the NYSE market and the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ASM. If you want a silver lining in your portfolio, think of Eno.